Hello, and welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog and now a podcast created for parents raising black and brown children. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton Lewis. In this podcast series, I talk with some really interesting people about the job and the joy of parenting. Today, I am so happy to have my dear friend, Dr. Sharon Malone, joining me for today's conversation about wellness, patient wellness and parent wellness, which I'm really focused on this season. Dr. Malone, a native of Mobile, Alabama, is an obstetrician and gynecologist who's practiced in Washington, D.C. for over 30 years. After recently retiring from private practice, Dr. Malone now serves as the medical director of Alloy, the new telehealth platform for women focused on perimenopause and menopause. She's a graduate of Harvard University and Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons, and she completed her OBGYN residency at George Washington University. She and her husband, Eric H. Holder Jr., our former U.S. Attorney General, have three children who are all in their 20s. Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, Sharon. (laughs) Oh, thank you, Carol. I've been waiting for this for a long time. I am so excited to have you here with us. Goals. We've been buds for so many years, and you're one of my absolute favorite people to talk to about so many things, music, kids, life, and most importantly for this podcast, medicine. You are my go-to person for straight talk on medical matters, and I'm so glad to have the chance to have this conversation with you about wellness on the podcast. I wanted to start by talking about how women approach healthcare. And before we start, I want to just say this is a parenting podcast. And so normally it's for parents of all genders, but this episode is really going to focus on women. Guys should definitely hear this and pay attention because some of this health advice will apply to you. And even if it doesn't, it's important for you to know what's going on with the women in your life. But for this podcast, I'm going to really focus on women. So Sharon, most women's primary healthcare physician is her OBGYN. Most women use their OBGYN as primary healthcare physicians. Is that right? That's correct. Because generally speaking, the OBGYN, other than your pediatrician, is the only doctor that you're going to see consistently for that many years. And it starts, obviously, when young women are interested in getting birth control and their wellness visits. And it goes straight from there to having children and beyond. So because you tend to see your OBGYN as a physician more than anyone else, the relationships that get established are more not just reproductive issues, but actually, you know, all of your other healthcare needs. And since most young women are healthy, this is usually sufficient until you're about in your mid-40s. Yeah, no, I know definitely for years as long as I saw my OBGYN annually, I felt like I was good. They took my blood pressure. <laughs> I mean, they took my temperature. I, I was, it was all good. But we've talked about this. Women tend to put healthcare needs of others ahead of their own. I mean, parents particularly, you know you're obligated to see an OBGYN when you're going to have a baby because you have to do all the things to keep the baby healthy. And then, of course, you go to the pediatrician for your child. But we spend so much time taking care of other people and only ourselves as it relates to other people that we really don't focus on our own health. And, you know, you said something on a podcast with Michelle Obama, which really stuck with me. And you said women's value in society is related to how much space they take up. How little space they take up. Right, right. Exactly. That was the thing. You're trying to occupy, you know, less space and that's psychological space as well as physical space. That's so true. I mean, in some circles, it's how thin you are. In other circles, it's how small your waist is relative to your chest or your butt. But isn't it true that how we look is not always directly related to our health? 
Absolutely. You know, we have become just obsessed with weight. And yeah, there is a point at which you can weigh too much. However, the BMI, which is sort of the gold standard of what we use for deciding who's overweight, who's obese, who's morbidly obese, is something that really doesn't have a lot of data behind it. You know, the BMI was originally supposed to be just to figure out what was average. And it went from there to sort of insurance actuarial tables, but the science behind a particular BMI and health or lack thereof is kind of thin. Oh. And, and, and I think this is also more important, is that it's not ethnically specific mm-hmm. because, mm-hmm. you know, someone who is Vietnamese has will have a different BMI than someone who is a Samoan. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that that person who would technically be overweight or obese is an unhealthy person. And that's sort of the concept that I think that we have bought into. Mm -hmm. Um, I think they're better indicators of health. Um, You can be overweight and healthy, and you can be very skinny and unhealthy. There is this concept called skinny fat. It has to do with how much muscle mass you have. Mm-hmm. And obviously, the more muscle you have, the higher your BMI. But, you know, again, culturally specific. And I think that that is something where particularly African-Americans, we tend to have B- higher BMIs. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, again, not closely correlated with ill health. So... That makes a lot of sense to me. And I know that we are all so focused on how we look. And some of us want to look bigger in some areas, like I said, small waist. Big. Yeah. But what then, even if we look really good in our clothes, whatever good is to us, mm-hmm. how do we then determine how healthy we are? And who is it that we should be talking to to figure that out? Well, you can talk to your doctor. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to have, because there are the other measures of health, regardless of what you weigh. Is your blood pressure normal? Is your blood sugar normal? What is your fitness level? Because there are functional things you should be able to do. And if you can't, you know, walk a flight of stairs or go on a two-mile hike and be breathless, those are the kinds Mm -hmm. of things. And I think that particularly as women age, I mean, we've got to really stop being so hard on ourselves. We're going to look different at 50 than we looked at 20. Too bad. You know, so sad. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) But that's not necessarily a bad thing. And I think that we just have to come to grips with that. And our focus should be more on what can we do? Mm -hmm. How fit are we? Um, Because that is going to be the biggest determinant in terms of how you age and how you age well. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you and your profession know we're going to look different than we did at 20 after we have babies (laughs) and then again as we get older. So it's easy to say, but harder to do. But it's really important that we focus on health. Looking good can can be a spectrum as opposed to a very specific narrow band. That is exactly right. It sounds like in addition to an OBGYN, you should have a general practitioner. Is that right? Or can one serve as both? I think that until a woman's 40, Mm -hmm. you know, unless you have specific health issues that require, you know, you to see someone else, you're probably good because the Mm -hmm. basic things that we're going to do, blood pressure, weight, you know, make sure you get your pap smears, your health screening can be done at your OBGYN's office. Depending upon who you see, a lot of us do blood work. So your basic blood work that you really don't need 
But every other year, if you're healthy, that can all be handled in your OBGYN's office. But as you start to get into your, I'd say, mid to late 40s, I always say definitely by the time you're 50, because then it's time for, I call it your 100,000 mile checkup. And you go whether you think you need to go or not, because there are a few other things that they do check that we don't do. Like we don't have the capacity to do EKGs and some of the other testing that you would have to get when you're 50. And it's a good habit to get into Mm -hmm. and not just because you're sick, but because there are other things that you look out for when you're 50. But the point that I want to make is in that between 40 and 50 range, Mm -hmm. a lot of stuff is happening. And I think that even if you're done having, you know, children, or even if you never have children, doesn't matter, those changes that start in that time frame really, I think you benefit from seeing your OBGYN sometimes even more because that's when these menopausal transitional changes start and you need to be prepared for it and know what's upcoming. Yeah, you know, um, I know I'm not alone in this, but my mom assured me she had no menopausal symptoms. I think in that era, everyone's mother said, oh, no, it was nothing. (laughs) And so maybe people were just so relieved to be done with that part of life that they just wanted to move forward. But it is no joke. I mean, this podcast is for parents of all ages, so only the um, older ones would be able to relate to this. But trust me, younger ones, (laughs) you will want to know about this as well. That, yeah, there are a lot, a lot of changes your body goes through, which we should talk about, which are fine, which are normal, but just haven't historically been normalized. And so um, I think it's really important to establish a good relationship, certainly with your OBGYN, and then ultimately with a a general practitioner as well, just so that when stuff happens, you're not just suddenly rushing to try to find someone. Right, right. You know what? I I think that, Carol, there are a couple of reasons why women sort of get to this phase in their lives and they don't have any idea what's going on or what to do about it. And one is that even when you have access to your parents, your mother or aunties or anyone, older women around you, just like you said, your mother says, I didn't go through a menopause. When they say I didn't go through menopause, you did, but you didn't, that means you didn't have symptoms. But I think that menopause is like childbirth. Once you go through it, there's like an automatic erase button that you can never (laughs) recall the experience as it was when you were actually going through it. So, yeah, you may have had that, but you forgot, you know, that's that's one. And two, I think that as we're going through this process, we're kind of alone. The symptoms, and this is why I said this is for young women, too. I mean, some women have go through this process in their 30s and 40s as they start transitioning. And I find that in my practice, I would always start having this conversation with women before they started having symptoms. So you shouldn't be surprised because the symptoms come not all at once, one here, one there, a couple, and you don't put all those things together. Mm -hmm. So knowing sort of that anticipatory guidance is what your OBGYN should be doing. Now, that being said, Carol, there are, there's a statistic out there that says that believe it or not, 80% of OBGYNs do not feel comfortable discussing menopause. They don't know what to do about it. They don't feel, you know, it, and then that a lot of it is a disconnect. It's the age that your doctor is, whether or not you have a male gynecologist as opposed to a female gynecologist, but they kind of like throw their hands up in the air and go, uh, let's not talk about that. And so that 
in and of itself is a problem. Mm -hmm. If the one trusted source that is supposed to be getting you through this process doesn't know what to do about it, and you can't talk to your mother or other women about it, then where are you supposed to go? Mm -hmm. That's what we're trying to combat is to really sort of, you know, give women a community, an outlet to say, hey, this is not abnormal. This is just, it's what it is. And, you know, as I say, forewarned is forearmed. So absolutely. I want to go back a little bit because I want to get more into sort of that, the growth of that community and building that community. But I want to step back a little bit into just sort of general health issues with women. So one of the things that stop a lot of us from going to the doctor, aside from not having a lot of time, I mean, you know, making the time to do it, is that the way that we feel unprepared for the visit. I mean, you always think you're going to the doctor for something scary. I mean, you're trying to eliminate something scary. And, and, and when, in fact, we should have annual wellness visits just to make sure that we're good. But let's say um, when we go into our, are there any ways that we can kind of take some of that edge off going to see a doctor, particularly if it's not for some scary thing we're worried about? Are there any kind of standard questions we should be asking? Is there information we should be coming away with from our doctor's visits that just will empower us to feel like we're doing something more for our health? Well, yes. Um, I, you know, I'm going to give you some very concrete tips for how to make the most of your doctor's visit because it's bad and it's gotten worse in terms of the amount of face time that you actually get to spend with your doctor. Mm -hmm. I think there's more and more pressure on the medical community to get people in, to get them out. With trying to do the electronic medical record, you find that you go in to talk to your doctor and your doctor is spending time looking at a computer screen and not talking to you. You know, so there are things that you say, if I have limited amount of time with my doctor, how am I gonna be efficient with that time? And the first thing is to, and this is just for a wellness visit, you know, not for a problem, mm -hmm. you know, be prepared. And by that, I say, you know, that most doctor's offices, you know, have websites where you can go to. And if there's paperwork that needs to be filled out, fill out your paperwork ahead of time. And it gives you an opportunity while you're at home to think about the things that you forget when you've got five minutes to fill out a form in a doctor's office. You'd be surprised. So you're talking to someone and they'll go, oh, oh, I oh, yeah, I did have that surgery. And you're like, really? <laughs> you know, you go in to do a pap smear and there's no cervix, you know, and you're like, well, what happened here? Oh, I had a hysterectomy. I didn't tell you that, you know. So if you take that time offline, do all your paperwork, gather up all the information that you possibly can and have that done ahead of time, then everybody's ready to go. You're not, mm -hmm. you know, starting from a deficit. Another thing is that a big helpful item is that if you see more than one doctor, you mm -hmm. have a dermatologist, a internist, as well as your uh, gynecologist, it is very helpful to pick doctors that are within the same medical community because they have the ability to access each other's records. Whereas it doesn't matter whether you have an electronic record or not. If my doctor is at Cornell and someone else is at Mount Sinai, they have no ability to talk mm. to each other. Mm -hmm. And you think that they do because it's like, well, it's all online, right? No, it, it, it is online. It's just not networks that are accessible. So uh. I would say if you can't do that, and sometimes that's just not feasible, then you have access electronically to your records because I think the biggest time waster in a doctor's office, and particularly when you come in with problems, 
is to assume that your doctor already has your record or your operative report or your x-ray or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you can count on the fact that they usually don't. And then that way you're going to spend all your time looking for something or having to come back, which is, you know, not useful for you and certainly isn't useful for the problem that you came in. So again, information either, if you don't have doctors within the same um, network, then bring your own, your little electronic version, print them out such that your doctor has everything that they need to have to talk to you about while you're there. And I think it's also important, even when you're going for a well woman visit, sometimes you have questions. Well, write those questions down and go in and be prepared to say, you know, I want to talk about this, this, and this, because they're the basics that you're going to have to get through. But with your specific questions, make sure you have them written down in an organized fashion. And your doctor will always, you know, they will give you a little time at the end for you to ask any questions that you have. And if you don't have time to get those questions answered to your satisfaction, then make another appointment and come back. Because I don't think that you're going to leave that interaction feeling seen and heard until you get your questions answered. And sometimes it may be too many, in which case, give yourself the opportunity to come back and and ask these questions and talk about these things with your clothes on. In the doctor's <laughs> office, because that doesn't exactly put you in the greatest space of all when you're sitting there on a table in a paper gown and your doctor is rushing, trying to get out of the room. So just come back. And then that way, it's just you, just them, and you get what you needed to get done. As you speak, it occurs to me that we are all consumers with our health as our product, and we should view it as being advocates for ourselves. I mean, we have access to information. Recently, I've spent some time with doctors in hospitals, and all the hospitals seem to have these apps now that you can get an app on your phone, which gives you their their privacy protected, of course, but they give you access to tests. And the cool thing is it's not only the most recent test, but they'll line up. If you've been going to the same doctor for a while, they'll line up like how you're doing. And I have to say that when I get the new stats and like put them in and like do the comparison, it, it is, it's kind of, I mean, assuming all's going well, it's kind of fun to see sort of over the years. But I mean, for all of you listeners who are not so tech savvy, you do have to kind of dive into the electronic app world to make this work. Right. I mean, don't be afraid of having to put in information and, and get back your stats because knowledge is power. And if you can walk in with your last five years of whatever, right. <laughs> it, makes you, right. it makes you a more informed consumer. So that, that actually was really helpful, Sharon. I appreciate that, that list of, of tips because, I shoot, I was taking notes. I, I definitely want to make sure I do that. You know, another part of wellness conversations outside the doctor's office are with friends, with trusted friends. You know, you've talked in, in other venues about sort of, you know, having groups of girlfriends that you talk about different medical. You, you of course, are generally the go-to person on the medical part, but is it a good idea to sort of talk more about these issues with friends? And if it is, how do we make sure that we're not misinforming each other if there's right. no doctor in our group? <laughs> I know. I spend a lot of time and I say, and I honestly mean this when I say I like being able to help my friends out because, you know, it it really brings to mind and drives home the point that most people leave their doctors unsatisfied, mm-hmm. you know, 
in some fashion or the other. Either you didn't understand it or you didn't get your questions or does this make sense? You know, so I think that we have to deal with the fact that that sort of how we deliver care and how we deliver information in this modern world where we are inundated with information, we have we have less useful information, I'll put it that way. Mm-hmm. So I think that it is helpful for friends to talk because even if you don't have a doctor in your midst, there's quite possibly someone who has had a similar experience mm-hmm. who maybe has someone else that they would recommend. And if anything, just to sort of validate your experience, just to say, mm-hmm. particularly when you're talking about perimenopause and menopausal issues, it is so helpful for women to realize, oh my God, this is not just me. I'm not crazy. You know, this is something that we can all laugh about and talk about and mm-hmm. sort of support each other through this process. So yes, I, I do recommend it. And as a matter of fact, sort of following on with that point, when you make a doctor's appointment and you are there for a particular reason, a problem, you're getting ready to have surgery, you know, there's going to be a heavy conversation that comes out of that visit. Mm-hmm. I would say, you know, in terms of having an advocate, yes, advocate for advocate for yourself, but you also should bring someone with you mm-hmm. for that visit, particularly when you're having these sort of difficult conversations, because you get emotionally overwhelmed and shut down when you're talking about things like, you know, you've been recently diagnosed with breast cancer, or you need surgery for this or that or the other. And it helps to have someone with you who can keep you on task, ask some of the questions that you're going to forget because your mind goes blank, Mm -hmm. and take notes for you. That is, is, I think, the most helpful thing. And I think most doctors should welcome that. The goal is to get you out of there with the information. There are things that we say so many times in a row that you know you said it, and the patients will even say, you never told me that. And I'm like, I did. <laughs> but you can't always hear it. And that's why I said, bring a friend or anyone who is your support person. So let me ask you, it's just a quick question. Would there be reason for a doctor to object if you wanted to record it in case you didn't have anybody with you? Or, you know, most doctors don't. Don't object or don't? Don't object. Don't oh, object. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, if you say, look, you're about to give me some information here and I didn't I don't have anyone to bring with me today, mm-hmm. then yes, you could record it. You could, you know, patients do that all the time. Mm-hmm. I, I have to say, when my mom um was experiencing memory loss dementia some years ago, I would record the sessions because she would deny that the doctor had said yeah. <laughs> all the things that yeah. the doctor would say. So it's like she wouldn't believe me. So <laughs> I figured I'd have to have the recording. So I have some experience with that. But but I wondered whether that's something that that people can do. I mean, I do agree. It's better to bring a friend because yeah. they can really help you interpret it psychologically as well as tell you what the doctor said. You know, one of the things that we've talked about that I just want to inject here is one of the issues that we have with going to doctors is trusting them. I mean, trusting because they have a lot of information that we don't. And it's just scary, particularly if you feel like there's something wrong with you. And, and in the Black community, we have an even greater issue because it's no surprise that some of us feel more comfortable going to doctors who look like us, but there aren't that many. I mean, isn't that right? The stats are really grim. Uh, unfortunately, only about 5% of physicians are African-American. And wow. That's not much. And when you think about the fact that the majority of those 5% are probably concentrated on the coast, 
you know, mm. and in major cities, in some places, the situation is even more dire. And I find that there, there's sort of two pieces of this. And it's about the reason why it's helpful to have an African-American doctor if you are an African-American patient. And that's not to say, you know, all are good or all others are bad. That's not it. It's just having a certain cultural literacy. Mm-hmm. So when you come in and you're telling me something, one, I know what you're talking about. It matters whether or not, you know, Southern people have a lot of uh, things and other names for things that uh, <laughs> that are probably not part of the, the general lexicon, but I know what you mean. And I can say things to you in a way that I know you'll understand me because you know, and sometimes as a surrogate, I've gone to appointments with my friends, you know, again, difficult mm-hmm. situations and we're going in and I was like, okay, I'll go with you and we'll talk about it. And I'm amazed at listening. I'm there and I'm a physician and I'm listening to another doctor talk to them and, I, and I'm saying, I'm not even following you, you know? <laughs> so... But we, as physicians, we talk in ways and use acronyms and, you know, words that are everyday and commonplace to us that most people don't know. Mm -hmm. And you nod because you don't want to, you know, everybody goes along and you walk out of there and it's like they have no idea what you just said. It's a lot of gobbledygook. And so that's why I said it would be the same as it's not necessarily, again, it's not necessarily just race. It's just having the cultural literacy to understand. It would be the same thing as if you were talking to someone. A good example would be if you're a psychiatrist and English is not your native language, not your first language, and you're trying to talk about things to someone who you know, again, it's a different dialect, you can understand how there's a lot of information that gets lost in uh, come, come incoming and outgoing. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. that's why I think it's important. We need to have, and, and you and I know this, Carol, we met, I don't know, many years ago, but there is a certain level of comfort in an interaction when you meet someone new, when that person looks like you, because mm-hmm. it, it's just, assumption that there are things you you grew up in New York I grew up in Mobile but we have a lot of common experiences because Mm -hmm. of our cultural background Mm -hmm. Um, and the same is true in medicine Um, I think that it matters whether or not the doctor sees this old lady or old man sitting in front of them and I don't see an old lady or see me I see my uncle I see Mm -hmm. grandma Mm -hmm. I see Mm -hmm. someone that again matters to me and that you approach that interaction a little bit differently than someone who's just random. Right, right, right. And I mean, in the perfect world, and in many instances, doctors approach people regardless of what they look like in that way. But I do think in a situation which can be fraught, it is kind of nice to be able to believe if you say, you know, I have sugar or whatever, you know, the person is not going to I have to interpret that or make you feel uncomfortable for using a phrase that they're not familiar with. Yeah. But so, so uh, for all the young parents out there with children who have STEM futures, please, <laughs> the, the, the medical profession needs you. Not <laughs> only that, um, Carol, and the reason why I want to say it's not just, um, it's not just, you know, black versus white and, and it's about cultural literacy. I was looking at some statistics the other day just to say, okay, how many, you know, African-American doctors are there and 5%. But when you break down that 5%, and this should be 
a little even more alarming is that less than 50% of that 5% are actually African Americans. When I mean, you know, born and raised in this country, by the time Black people of African descent, Black people, West Indian descent. And again, there is a certain, so you can't assume that just because your doctor's Black, that again, that cultural literacy and cultural Mm -hmm. communication is really there. So, you know, that's why I said I encourage, you know, young people to actually go into medicine because, you know, again, it matters. It matters a lot. Oh, Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It does. And just as a quick aside, uh, we're not going to get much into this in this podcast, but there are some positive statistics on how much a black OBGYN can help save black babies. I mean, Mm -hmm. what's alarming is that statistics have shown that when there's a black doctor, OBGYN, and, and birthing a black baby, the baby has a much higher survival rate. And so, I mean, that's a good thing, but it's alarming in the sense that if there aren't that many doctors, that doesn't bode well statistically. Right. And 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 actually, it's a little bit the other way around. It is black babies who are cared for in the nursery by black neonatologists and or wow. nursing care. Oh, oh, interesting. Interesting. That is for um, that those babies do better. Mm -hmm. And I think for black women, I think the thing that has come up a lot and and has gotten a lot of press is about the maternal mortality statistics and the uh, complications of pregnancy that are much higher in Mm -hmm. African-American women than there are in the majority population. And there are a lot of reasons for that. A lot of them are socioeconomic. You know, you have Mm -hmm. to deal with the fact that, you know, we have less access to quality health care. Poverty plays into that. In Washington, D.C., for instance, there is not a full-service maternal hospital in Southeast Washington. Hmm. There was a hospital, it was D.C. General, and then it was United, it was something else, but, you know, there's no hospital over there. So access is a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but even when you control for socioeconomic and geographic locations, still African-American women of any particular age, you put them against their age and all the other demographic markers matched, Black women still do worse. Mm. And I say this because I think it's important. It is really important to say that, that we focus on that disparity because it should not be it should not be that, you know, black women are two to three times more likely to die in childbirth and, you know, babies are three times likely to die. And that's because of prematurity. But the take home message is this, Carol, is that the disparity is wide and it has been there for quite some time. We're not really narrowing that gap enough. But overall, if you looked at what has happened to maternal mortality and infant mortality over the past, Hundred years, there's been a precipitous decline for both black and white. And that is because, you know, again, we've got antibiotics, we've got C-sections, we most babies are born in hospitals now. So there is, you know, there is some success to be looked at. And I don't want to leave people with the impression that three times more likely, but three times more likely of what baseline? And the baseline is much lower now than it was 50 years ago. It's just that we've sort of stagnated probably in the past 20 years or so with that number. The disparity exists, but the overall number is not high. This is a really important distinction to make, Sharon. I'm glad you bring that up because, you know, we tend to gravitate towards the scariest statistics right. and right. and kind of stop there. That is a critical, a critical distinction. 
We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to the show. Now, Dr. Malone, I want to make a little bit of a pivot, <laughs> and I want to talk less about patients in general and, and Dr. Sharon Malone specifically, because not only are you our go-to medical person, OBGYN extraordinaire, you are also the mother of three children. <laughs> and um, <laughs> whom, whom you have raised while holding down a full-time career in practicing medicine. And so I am not going to ask you the normal question that people who have full-time jobs and raise children get asked, which is, how do you juggle it all? Because we just do, you do. But I want to kind of flip it and ask, what about your parenting world helped you on the professional side? And I mean that, I mean, clearly as an OBGYN, once you had a child, you could relate more. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I don't mean that. I mean, <laughs> that helped. <laughs> but, but, but beyond that, is there anything about having to manage your children in the household that actually helped on the practice side? And the answer can be no, but... Yeah, you know, not really, Carol. I mean, because I think it went the other way around because, see, I got married a little bit later in life. I was well on my career as an OBGYN before I had kids. So mm -hmm. if anything, there were things about, you know, just how I learned how to prepare for things as being a doctor. I'm one of those people that, as a physician, and particularly when you do surgery... I have to prepare for not only what happens if everything goes right, but what am I going to do if something goes wrong? So you've got to do like those two or three steps ahead to be prepared for whatever. So you don't ever want to be surprised about things. Some of that works with children. Uh, <laughs> a lot of it doesn't <laughs> because they can always hit you with something that you just did not see coming, you know, so, so there's that. But yeah, I mean, I think that you, the one thing I can say and I could relate is that it's hard. I think it's hard whether you work, it's hard whether you're home. Raising children is just, it's difficult, you know? <laughs> I laugh sometimes when people are, you know, when they start waxing poetic about, oh, it was the most important and wonderful thing I've ever done. And I'm like, well, sometimes, you know. <laughs> Well, I imagine that makes for a good OB to have a healthy perspective on this because, you know, there is this temptation. I mean, every time you brought a child into this world, you sort of witnessed this miracle of birth and everybody is, you know, sort of starry eyed. So I guess it's good to have that. The other perspective is like, it's all good until it isn't as good. Yeah. yeah. And there, there are lots of parts in there that are like, whew, you know, um, <laughs> But, you know, I think the, the perspective that I really had, Carol, and I mean, there, there's some good news and bad news. And, and the good news is that being the youngest of eight kids, you know, I can say that by the time my parents got to me, parenting was really no longer a verb. You know what I mean? It was like, yeah, what, whatever, you know, good luck, kid. Hope you live. You know, it was kind of like that. But... You know, so there is, and, and watching, and I, this is a perspective I really have, is that of the eight of us, you probably couldn't put two together and say, oh, yeah, I see where those are so similar, mm -hmm. temperament, personality, any of that. You had, even the ones that were closer together that shared more of my parents, you know, a similar mm -hmm. age, you know, when my parents were much younger. And so I've always had a healthy respect for the fact that People come here 
a certain way, you mm-hmm. know, and our job as parents is to not screw them up. But, you know, I have a real healthy respect for the fact that you can mold and shape so much, mm-hmm. but the basic building blocks and material that you have to work with, you, that you got what you got. So, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, and I think that was a, a, a healthy perspective because I, n- I never came into this thinking that I had total control over what my children were going to be. Even that being said, that still doesn't um, let you off the hook when mm-hmm. things don't go well, because I think that parents and particularly mothers, we take um, we take too much ownership of that, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and I think societally we are, it's suggested that we should. I mean, we, we do... Right. We take it upon ourselves. I mean, often when things don't go right, all the heads swivel to the mom right. to, to right. wonder why, regardless of whatever else you're doing with your life. And so I, I agree. We do take too much on ourselves. I think we're forced to take a lot on ourselves. And I should also say that probably attributes to why our health is in jeopardy, because right. we, we take it all. We wear it physically. We wear it mentally. Well, think about it in terms of, and this is where this gap sort of comes in in women's ability to take care of themselves because we are, um, particularly those of us who had our children in our 30s, mm-hmm. you know, and um, early 30s, even late 20s, you are in that position where your children are coming into their own and becoming, you know, adolescents around the time that you start having your own hormonal challenges. Mm-hmm. And many times you're dealing with aging parents. So, you know, when you're talking about, you know, I've got to tend to this, I've got to tend to that. And, you know, you get lost in that shuffle. And, Mm -hmm. you know, as I tell people all the time, I said, you know, and that's sort of when the menopausal stuff starts to kick in, the perimenopause, the menopause, the symptoms. I mean, you know, and at times, you know, there's not a worse time to be irritable, you know. You just have too many (laughs) balls in the air and too many people to take care of. And when you start making those priorities, you fall to the bottom of that list. Now, it would be helpful if you had someone to sort of talk you through that and to say, life is tough. Yeah, but there are some things in that middle that you can tend to for yourself to make yourself feel better. You know, it's. I think this is a really important point here because you describe perfectly that sort of point in life where you've got younger children, you've got older parents, if you're fortunate to have them, and life is swirling around you, and you don't even stop to think that whatever is happening in you internally could be contributing to it. Right. And, and if you do think about that, you'll get defensive because you don't want to have something ascribed to you that you don't understand. Sort of like don't right. you know? You don't want people to accuse you of being. I don't know, hormonal or whatever that might be. So, but there is, there is a physiological thing happening to you (laughs) that we all need to explore, which which actually segues so well into Alloy, because I don't want to end without hearing a little bit more about this, because now you've teamed together with people who are focused on helping women acknowledge this and do something about it. Um, Tell me a little bit about how it's going to work. One of the things that I've discovered is that the way that we deliver care is inefficient for everyone involved, for you, for the doctors. You know, that kind of one-on-one experience doesn't work well because, again, you don't get enough time and, you know, doctors don't really have enough time to devote on a one-on-one basis anyway. And the one thing, and this is where COVID comes in, because during COVID, 
we realized, wow, there's a lot of stuff that we talk about that I don't really need you to be here. I don't need to physically have you get in your car and drive to my office and pay for parking mm-hmm. for me to talk to you about certain things. Um, and so that telehealth or, or realizing that we have to have a different platform for how to talk about certain things has gotten people comfortable with that idea. So what Alloy Health is trying to do is that we're taking just one issue and we're taking perimenopause, menopause, women 40 plus, and taking those things that really don't require an in-person visit. We are actually trying to do an education piece and also provide community for women in that window so that they understand what their options are. You know, Mm -hmm. one, you recognize it, now, well, now that I've recognized it, what do I do about it? And kind of take that experience. And when you put it into the online sort of telehealth marketplace, you find out that you can say one thing one time to a lot of women, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as opposed to saying it a thousand times to a thousand women. It's just, you know, you, you have more reach that way. And I think that the other thing that we have come to is that realize that we get back to that same issue of, of, of lack of access. And particularly for all the reasons we talked about for how women are prioritizing healthcare and usually not for themselves, we find that if 80% of OBGYNs, you're lucky enough to have one, but 80% of your OBGYNs don't feel comfortable even talking about this, then we've got a lot of educating to do. And that's kind of what I bring to this, my 30 years of experience in dealing primarily with women in perimenopausal and menopausal years and bringing that to a broader audience and actually explaining to women, you know, the pros and cons of hormone therapy during menopause. Mm-hmm. It's not for everybody, but I think that we've lived in a world for the past 20 years where it's been taken off. The most effective tool that we have for managing menopausal symptoms has been taken off the table for reasons of uh, that will take too long to go into, but really based on fear. Mm-hmm. and not on medical data and facts. And I think that this is the piece that we've got to get from around the table, you know, mm-hmm. and talking about mm-hmm. your friends and somebody else who had this terrible thing to getting some really good, solid information. We want to be able to democratize this process because there should be no reason why. Now, there's a thing actually called um, the North American Menopause Society, which certifies doctors and nurse practitioners in menopause care. But good luck finding one because it's the same problem. Now you're you're looking for a very small number of people. But if you have someone in Kansas should be able to get the same information that you could get in New York City. And that's why the telehealth platform is an excellent medium for being able to do that, to get the information out to a broader group of women. That's great. Alloy Health. And you can, you know, go through sign up. And again, a lot of it is information. My goal is not to sell you something. My goal is to give you information. I think that women are smart enough to be able to look at that and say, you know, this either is for me or it's not for me. And we give you some guidance on how to choose that. Mm-hmm. But I also think that it, it, given the information, women shouldn't feel guilty about feeling better. I mean, that's our goal. Absolutely. That is the perfect way (laughs) to end this conversation. Generally speaking, women should not feel guilty about feeling better. And Dr. Malone, thank you so much for 
helping us figure out ways to feel better because we certainly need them. Now, before we get out of here, I need you to play the GCP lightning round very quickly. Four questions for you very quickly. First, the mom moment that you'd love to do over. Just one. (laughs) Okay, just one. Mm -hmm. Um, I would take more maternity leave. Ah. I don't know what I was thinking, you know. (laughs) I don't know what I was thinking. I was like, take the 12 weeks for God's sake, you know? (laughs) Good answer. Okay. The mom moment when you absolutely nailed it, you got it right. (laughs) I'm sure there are so many. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'll tell you, my children always sort of tease me about being that mom. And I'm the mom who, when you're on a ski trip, you know, if I've thought about the fact that you might lose your glove you need an extra pair of socks. So I've got an extra everything, you know, I've got the first aid kit going, you know. Um, And we were on vacation. And of course, I have my kit. And everybody's like, why do you bring all that stuff? All right. So we were in we were renting a house that had a wood deck. And I just happened to have some splinter tweezers. Okay. <laughs> I used those splintered tweezers like 12 times. The kids across the street would run over and go, oh, I have a splinter. And I was like, I said, you come over here one more time and I'm going to charge you a copay, you know? <laughs> Way to go. Combining motherhood and profession together in nailing it. Okay. Your, your favorite poem or your favorite saying? My favorite poem is Mother to Son. Langston Hughes. Ah. I love that. Yes. Oh, as as I do. That is great. And then finally, a couple of your favorite children's books, either ones you grew up with or ones that you read to your kids. There is a book called There Are No Mirrors in My Nana's House. I read that to my children. I don't to particularly my girls. I don't know, 100 times. There was a CD uh, with the book and it was Mm -hmm. um, the woman from uh, Sweet Honey and the Rock wrote the book. So Mm -hmm. at the end of it, We'd put the CD in, we'd read the book, and then we'd sing the song. So that that is one of my favorites. Oh, oh, oh. And the others? Um, if you give a mouse a cookie. Mm-hmm. We, <laughs> we use that all the time, even today. You know, every time somebody goes, it's like, you know, that's our family. You give a mouse a cookie. There you go. Sharon. Thank you so much for this great conversation. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for being on the podcast. And thank you most of all for giving our listeners such valuable information about their health. Thank you, Carol. I enjoyed it. I hope everyone listening enjoyed this conversation and that you'll come back for more. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends. For more parenting info and advice, please check out the Ground Control Parenting blog at groundcontrolparenting.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Ground Control Parenting and on LinkedIn under Carol Sutton Lewis. The Ground Control Parenting with Carol Sutton Lewis podcast is a part of the Seneca Women Podcast Network in partnership with iHeartMedia. Until the next time, take care and thanks for listening.